0: Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by A Novel Idea, a community-minded bookstore and event space in East Passyunk, Philadelphia. At A Novel Idea, we hope to create and foster a space of diversity and inclusivity, and we want to help our customers fall in love with books, either for the first time or the millionth. More than anything, our goal is to cultivate community. Stop in or shop online at com, And we're proud to support Zora's Den, dedicated to empowering the lives of Black women writers. At Zora's Den, we host a monthly reading series, conduct workshops, and invite writers to share their work in progress for feedback and constructive criticism. Our hope is to build a sisterhood of writers at every level of accomplishment. And to strengthen the voices of the unheard and unacknowledged. If you're a Black woman writer, you're welcome to join us. Learn more at Zorasden.com. I used to have some trouble with January. The holidays are over, the warm weather in Cleveland is still far, far away. Snow that delighted me at Christmas just obstructs and slows my commute now. It can also be a lonely time. I don't meet many neighbors when I walk my dog. Folks aren't out. If I want to see people, I either need to make a plan or wait for an invitation. And between dry January and winter colds and the flu, invitations seem few and far between. January sometimes lets me down. In fact, there was this piece I sang in choir years back that always comes to mind in January. It's called In the Bleak Midwinter, and it musically encapsulated the whole season. All our other winter tunes were cheerful carols or melodic Hanukkah songs or big, booming excerpts from Handel's Messiah. And then there was In the Bleak Midwinter. I mean, listen to these lyrics. In the bleak midwinter, Frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow on snow. And it went on like that, commenting bleakly about what I consider to be the dreary state of things in January. But lately, I've come to find the holidays and all their trappings and jolliness just kind of a lot, so when we finally reach the bleak midwinter, I've started to view it as a kind of sanctuary. Everything in nature has its season, and it's this time of quiet, hibernation, rest, and looking inward that's come to feel like, if not what I want, probably what I need. If December is shiny with tinsel, January is hard as iron, like a stone. Solid, sturdy, dependable. And so I loved my warm conversation today with writer Athena Dixon, who recently published a book called The Loneliness Files, naming the ways that we so often feel separated from one another even when we're enduring a season together. Born and raised in Northeastern Ohio, Athena Dixon is a poet, essayist, and editor. In addition to The Loneliness Files, she's the author of the essay collection The Incredible Shrinking Woman and No God in This Room, the winner of the Intersectional Midwest Chapbook Contest. Athena's work has also appeared in publications such as Harper's Bazaar, Shenandoah, Grub Street, Lit Hub, and the Washington Square Review, among others. She's been nominated for three pushcart prizes for both poetry and creative nonfiction, as well as a best of the net nomination for poetry. Athena was the founder of Linden Avenue Literary Journal, which published through 2021. And she's a former co-host of the New Books in Poetry podcast. She writes, edits, and resides in Philadelphia. Athena Dixon, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me. You're the recent author of The Loneliness Files, a memoir and essays that asks, quote, what does it mean to be a body behind a screen? Which is surely something that most, if not all of us, asked during like our Zoom pandemic and loneliness. Like You also describe your fascination with true crime, which is you know, women, especially women dying alone. So will you tell us some of your story, including how you came to be interested in uh, these topics?
1: So the book kind of came out of my own fear and my own curiosity about dying alone. So I am a single person. I'm divorced. I have no children. I have no pets. And I live about 400 miles from my family. And when COVID, the first wave of lockdowns happened in 2020, I went from working in an office five days a week to working from home exclusively. And so it was me in this 950 square foot apartment by myself while the world is kind of like in shambles. And I started the first couple of weeks, I was like, okay, this is cool. I don't have to deal with people. I don't have to go outside. My work duties were significantly reduced. And then like a month went by and I'm like, oh, Um, this is bad. (laughs) This is really bad and this is going to be for the foreseeable future. And so I started getting really, really afraid of dying alone. And so I started watching video game walkthroughs. I started watching true crime videos and mysterious disappearance videos as a way to kind of like break up the silence in my home. But what happened was is that the algorithm led me to stories of women who had died alone. And I was looking at these women, and I'm like, "That's me. (laughs) That could be me. I might not sit in front of the TV for three years, but nobody would know for a little bit of time." And so that's where the curiosity began, and then I started dissecting how loneliness showed up in my life, and I started writing essays about it.
0: Yeah, well the the obsession with these two seemingly separate ideas and the way they come together in your book is really quite masterful, and I. I actually would consider myself, I'm an extroverted person. I live in a very crowded house. I'm not someone who listens to a lot of true crime. So I, I don't sound like the target audience for this book, but I found such kinship in your pages. I mean, sometimes I feel lonely when I'm surrounded by other people. I learned the German word for this is like Zweisamkeit, which I learned from the writer Gabrielle Zevin. But the idea of like you're surrounded by people and why are you lonely? Um, But I also feel like admitting to loneliness almost comes with this like implied judgment or blame. Like if I tell you I am lonely, it's like I'm saying people don't want to spend time with me. And you, you write something like that. You're like, alone Alone seems like a choice, loneliness doesn't. But like you didn't call this book The Alone Files. You called it The Loneliness Files. Do you ever feel like people are blaming
1: you for your loneliness? I think so in some ways. I think people think that loneliness is something that can be resolved by just being in community and conversation and connection with other people. And I don't think that they give much thought or much value to it being a very internal thing that people struggle with. I think that... The goal for people when you say you're lonely is just find somewhere to go, hang out with somebody. Maybe you're mean. Maybe you're a bad person. I'm like, no. Maybe I just feel a little bit disconnected from the world. I think that people approach loneliness as really like a solutions based thing. And by the time I got to the end of the book, and as I've been talking about the book over the last couple of months, I realized that there is no solution for it. And I'm hoping that maybe the book sways people to that side, so they can see that there's not a character flaw. It's not some kind of like character judgment. It's just an innate thing in some people where there's always like a little bit of a buffer. There's always a little bit of a veil and it doesn't mean that they don't have connection or community and that, that they don't love and they're not loved in return, but there's just some, some balance in their bodies that leads them to be a little bit more solitary and isolated than the quote unquote average person.
0: Sure. It's like telling somebody who's depressed, "Well, just cheer up as though that's going to help at all. It
1: doesn't work that way. No,
0: no. Well, you, um, you wrote in your book uh, about lonely corpses is that what they're called lonely corpses I had never heard that phrase before I'd never I mean I I'd, I'd know those two words separately but when you put them together uh, these are people who died alone and were often discovered later in some cases much much later. The story that you begin with is Joyce Carol Vincent who died in her London apartment in 2003. And was not discovered until 2006, right beside some Christmas presents that she was wrapping. And for me, it's actually the Christmas presents that always gets me. Like, who were those people she had gifts for and why didn't they check on her in the three years? Um, So you write that you felt a common link between the two of you. Will you tell us some
1: of Joyce's story? So Joyce was a woman of Generation X, just like me. Um, At the time she passed, she was 38. She was well-educated. She worked for large corporations. She worked for Ernst & Young at some point. She was a singer. She had, I believe, four sisters. She was engaged at some point. And she had just a very connected and upwardly mobile life. People thought she was beautiful and talented. And then at some point... Before she passed away, she completely disconnected from society. She moved into the apartment that she was found in was like almost like an apartment through like social services. So it was subsidized by the state or the city. And that's why she lingered for so long, because her rent was still being paid and and portioned by this program. And there's like this huge disconnect how she went from this very well-educated, beautiful, attached and, and known woman to this solitary corpse in front of a television for three years. But she had everything that you're expected to have as a person and functioning in society and just something in her let go. And we really don't know what it is.
0: And what about that story made you feel tethered, other than the fact that you lived alone and she lived alone and you were about the same age, but the... I don't know. I feel like I learn about people a lot. And I'm like, oh, interesting story. But what what
1: drew you to that? I think part of it was because I was hiding behind a sense of, like, hyper-independence. So I was looking at myself like, oh, you're very well-educated. You have three college degrees, and you have a full-time job you've had for, like, 15 years, and you write books, and you've traveled the world by yourself, and you've done all these amazing things. But at the end of every single day, you come home by yourself, You order dinner and you go to sleep by yourself. Like this hyper independence was like this mask and I'm looking at her and I'm like, if I would have looked at her from the outside, I would have thought the exact same thing. Her life is amazing. Um, Looking at the fact that she had sisters, I have one sibling and me and my sister talk every single day. And still at the end of every night, I'm by myself. And for me looking at Joyce, it was the first time where I said, there's something deeper than this hyper independence that I'm clinging to, that I'm using this hyper independence as a crutch. And if I don't make some kind of real changes or I don't at least investigate why I am so far from my family, why I only go home one time a year, why I'm so like utterly alone at the end of the day, this could be my fate. And I think for the first time looking at Joyce's story, I was like, all these trappings of success and accomplishment mean nothing if you're alone at the end of it.
0: Yeah, I think we're fed, at least I think I was fed this idea. So my family has... A, quite a, a long history of mental illness um, and self-harm and 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 other things. And I think I thought that the way to immunize myself and um, the antidote was I could just um, achieve my way out of that, right? So like if someone, who was depressed, didn't go to college, well, at least I would go to college and then I wouldn't be depressed. Or if someone who abused alcohol um, was in between jobs, well, I wouldn't be like that. I would be fully employed all the time. And that if I just achieved a certain amount, even, even like the American dream of like the the partner and the kids, like there's this idea that if you, if you tick those boxes, then um, nothing bad can come for you. And of course, that has not been my experience, right? No amount of, yeah, no amount of college education uh, was going to prevent me from losing my dad during the pandemic, right? Nothing that I achieved was going to change my relationship with my mom. Um, And I could go on there. But we do, you have this idea that, I mean, when you talk about Joyce, like, right, she had it all going for her. What could have happened? The fact is, stuff just happens.
1: Something just kind of breaks. Like I write in the, the um, as they said, the spider to the fly when I told my dad I was tired. He came and got me. Like that was really like the only way I could describe it was like there is something in me that is cracked or broken or worn down and I'm just tired. And at the time, that tiredness manifested as me just letting go of everything and hiding and and barely existing and like i think probably and i would hate to speculate but i kind of have to at this point because she's no longer here i can only imagine that probably the weight of her life and the weight of her accomplishments and the expectations outside and inside of her own mind forced her to kind of just let go and then once you let go it's kind of difficult to get grips back onto the things that you should have a grip on
0: yeah i loved your daddy in that point when he when he sensed that something wasn't right and he came and scooped you up. I loved him at that moment in the book. But to, to your point about these women who die alone, that um, they may have known what was going on or they may not have. I mean, because you also write a story about Elisa Lamb, who died at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles. And that hotel, I used to live in LA. So that hotel has kind of a story dark. Bad stuff happened there. But if we just focus on this one young girl, you, you said you found common ground with her because you sometimes feel like, quote, the victim of your own haunting. Will you tell us about Elisa and then uh, what it means to be uh, self-haunted?
1: Mm-hmm. So Elisa was a Canadian student who set out on a North American trip by herself. She came to L.A. on a solo trip. Um, She stayed at the Sisa Hotel, and and before her unfortunate demise, she had visited, like, all these places that she wanted to visit. She had gone to a bookstore and ordered books, and we're going to have them shipped. And she was a woman who also suffered from um, mental illness, and that's where they eventually said that she, um, why she perished. But at some point during her trip, very much like Joyce, something happened where she ended up on the roof of the hotel and her body was found in the water tank above the the hotel. And it was only through other guests complaining about the water that they realized that there was something in the tank and it was her. Um, and the unfortunate part of her story is the idea that a lot of people, especially some true crime podcasts have analyzed the video of her in this elevator, very disjointed and very kind of like, obviously in some kind of distress and, fixing all these kind of paranormal or other kind of nefarious things to this woman's last moments, essentially. And so she's become kind of like this specter for people to kind of like put ghost stories to. And, and so when I say that I was also like a victim of my own haunting, part of it was because for a very long time, I lived in like the ghost of my former life, that it was a lot of what if, if I would have done this, if I wouldn't have gotten divorced, if I would have had children, if I wouldn't have... Um, tried to kill myself that one time, like, where would the, the, what version of my life would I be living? And it took a lot of work and honestly therapy <laughs> to um get out of those, like those ghosts, because I had all the good girl graces that we were kind of just talking about. I did everything I was supposed to do in my life imploded in a heartbeat. And so it took me years to get beyond the ghost of that former life and to kind of live in the present. And so, that's what I mean, like when I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm haunting myself. I'm like I'm haunting myself with these what ifs and these could have been's or should have been's at some points, too. Yeah, I think with
0: Elisa's story, I think that tendency to like ascribe paranormal activity. I think we, we have this tendency when bad things happen is we want to make sure we understand how that could not happen to us. And so someone gets cancer and they're like, well, they smoked. Or someone's there's a there's a video in an elevator like, oh, see, there there was there was a ghost or see, she was uh, bipolar. And that's why we want like to have a reason, because if we have a reason, it's like, our, again, it's like the antidote and then it won't happen. It won't happen to us. And um that's just not it's just not how it goes. We're not ever going to know what happened to this this poor woman when you mentioned your own battles against suicidal ideation or depression? I I guess I have two questions. One, I just want to know how you're doing now. And the other one I want to know is like, you're in your own head. So how do you tell the difference between, oh, I'm lonely and oh, I'm going to hurt myself?
1: Right now I'm good. I, I appreciate that It for a, a lot of years, I was very, very skilled at pushing down everything that I felt because I felt like I couldn't express it. I felt like I would alter the version of myself that I believed my family and friends expected me to be. Not that they've ever asked me to be anything other than okay and here and loving and alive, but I had this idea that they wanted me to be a particular thing that I had to be a particular thing. So I hid just the, the bile that was in my body for a very long time. And thankfully I have a therapist now who. Um, I see on a weekly basis that allows me to kind of talk about the very good stuff about my life and also the kind of the darker parts and helps me find a balance between the kind of the two versions of myself. So I'm glad that I have now had my official diagnosis of depression, anxiety, ADHD. It took me to my forties to get diagnosed with ADHD. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So now I'm like, Oh, my brain, it makes sense now in some ways. Um, but in terms of like, for me Knowing the difference, I think I almost have to I, I talked about at um one of the book tour stops back in Akron about part of the way that I do that, determining like if it's something darker versus just a need for loneliness or isolation is asking myself kind of basic hierarchy questions because I know for me, my darkest seasons always start. those those lulls always start with the basic stuff that I don't do anymore. Am I sleeping? Um, am I eating? Um, am I like <laughs> the last essay, one of the last essays in my first book was called Depression is a Pair of Panties. <laughs> I can tell when I'm on a slide if I don't do laundry so long that I'm wearing panties that I don't like because I don't have the the mindset to be able to go down to the laundry room and, and wash clothes. So like my basic self-care, my basic functioning starts to to wane. And if I don't get a handle on that, I know that I'm I'm sliding. Um my loneliness and my need for isolation usually manifests as me being grumpy, um, not wanting to be involved, not wanting to answer text messages or stuff like that. My my darker sides don't really show up that way. But when I don't take care of my basic needs, I know that's where that first slippery slope is happening. Um, and so I... I thankfully now through therapy, through being very open through my writing with my family and friends, they start to recognize like, hey, Athena, you mentioned that you're really tired. When's the last time you really slept? And then they're kind of like pulling me back. But that's how it usually starts for me. It's like just not taking care of basic things um, is a slippery slope.
0: Yeah. I used to be a counselor at a in-between school. This was for kids who had bounced out of their public schools and had either been uh, part of the juvenile justice system or had had um, mental health issues that had made being at home not safe um, for anybody. And one of the first things we would do with them was like fold the clothes in their foot locker, just like line things up so that all the pants were clean and they were here and all the t-shirts were here and all the bras were there and they had clean underwear and clean socks and we made sure that if we did laundry every 7 days that they had 8 pairs of all those things or 9 you just did. and and in the beginning i was just like i can't believe we're doing this like she's she's got gang activity and she was like i had this long list of stuff we had to get to with the kids and um it was totally true though if you didn't tackle the abc's of getting food and um a shower and a sense of order and rest we couldn't tackle anything else we weren't in a position no one that they couldn't do the the therapeutic work that we needed to do because uh and and then just like you're saying you could see the the slide what happened was when i might open the foot locker and it's mayhem or when the kid doesn't have any clean pants because they haven't done the simplest thing of putting the the clothing into the hamper that we were carrying up to laundry uh it sounds so simple but when you're in it, it really isn't, right? Laundry seems insurmountable.
1: Like I was um, standing in my kitchen the other night cooking dinner and I was making peas and I took a spoonful of the peas and I was chewing them. And it made me flash back to um, the scene again where my dad came and got me because one of the meals that I would eat when I was just like, I have to eat something or I'm going to pass out. Was a random bowl of snow peas with butter and salt. And I haven't eaten them in so long because it was such a, a, a trigger for that time in my life that I'm like, I know that at a bare minimum, I'm a lot better than I was because this would have crushed me a couple of years ago to just see peas in a bowl. So yeah, if sometimes the most basic of self care is not basic, like it's that's the hardest thing to do sometimes.
0: Sure. Hey, you mentioned that you had an adult diagnosis of ADHD. Are there things looking back that now make a ton of sense to you that didn't then? Or how has it shaped you as a creator or just as a human being?
1: I think I spent a lot of time, despite all of the socially acceptable things that I've accomplished, feeling like I was never good enough at anything because I didn't have the ability to complete a lot of stuff. I've done... Like, I've written multiple books at this point, but also have, like, the the skeletons of a thousand more sitting in a laptop. Um, I've done, I've always felt like there's never been something that I've been, like, great at because I cannot focus long enough. And I, I spent a lot of time making myself feel like I was lazy or I wasn't utilizing my intelligence because I could not focus on something long enough to accomplish it to the the standards that I thought it should be accomplished. And so now looking back at that as an adult, I'm like, oh, that's just because you were operating in a system that wasn't built for how your brain works. That is in some ways a miracle <laughs> that you did the things that you did. Um, I, I think now I've, I've, I'm giving myself the grace of understanding that i have to to formulate my days like even being di- at a base level too being diagnosed with adhd in my 40s has allowed me to go into my day job and be like hey this is my diagnosis this is what i need to, for you to accommodate me to be able to meet my goals and to finally have them say after 15 years okay sure we got you and to see me be able to, and for me and for them to be able to see, oh, she can accomplish these things because now we know this is how she functions. So it's, a, it's giving me the space to like not be as hard on myself for not feeling like I'm just lazy. I used to refer to myself as lazily intelligent all the time because I felt like I wasn't living up to my potential because I couldn't focus enough to complete anything.
0: That's fascinating because those stories that we tell ourselves or the stories that are told about us. They can come to be true even when they're not, right? That that people thought you weren't focusing when really, well, maybe you were focusing on everything at once. That's reminding me of another word. This one I learned from your book, the concept of sonder. I'd never heard that before. Um, you quote the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which I'm going to need to go and get because I what a great title. But the, that sonder is the quote, like the profound realization that each Random passerby is living a life as as vivid and complex as your own. Um, there's something beautiful about your book when you capture the lives of these women who are more than like charts and statistics. Right, they're they're full full humans. And then there's also something beautiful about the way you open your heart to your story. Um, that when we read that Sondre is 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 there, I I suppose it's more like oh you're walking by someone on the street and that's when I realize it. But but when I read, I feel like it really, I get this profound sense of connection. Truthfully, doing this podcast was born from loneliness in the pandemic um, and grief, and I I feel like it's the like the great gift of my life to to cut through those divisions that are often I don't know. If we met at a party, it would just be like I'd be like, Oh, cool ring. And you'd be like, Thanks. Cool
1: hair tie.
0: You know, like that like and so there's something really <laughs> glorious about being able
1: to cut through all that. I think part of why I was so attracted to the idea of Saunder, which was the original title of the book really? <laughs> before it went into edits. Yeah. Huh. Um the loneliness files actually was the name of all the works cited and I had like a whole list of different pieces of media that inspired me to write the book. And so when we went into edits, it got swapped to um, the Loneliness Files for the book as a whole. Um, but I was really interested in this idea of Sonder because it really is this idea that we, I think, in some ways, because of technology and social media and content creation, we live in a space where everybody is in some ways expected to be a main character. And because of that, you forget that everybody else around you is not your supporting cast, that they're real people with real lives. And they may have the cool hair tie, but that hair tie might be the last holdover from like a parent. Or that ring might be some antique that they found they are now obsessing about that they're going to write a book about. Like there's all these little things about each other that we don't know because we're so sometimes focused on trying to be like the main character in our story, in the world in general. I was on a train a couple of weeks ago and it was packed. And so I asked this random little old man, because I sit next to him and we spent three hours talking about music and I let him use my phone charger. I don't know his name. He doesn't know my name. We talked for three hours. I got off the train, best three hours of my life. But now that little bit of sonder, I know everything about this man in that three hours and we'll probably never see each other again. And that's, kind of why I was interested in saying, like, let us have a little bit of a deeper connection to each other. Maybe that alleviates some of the loneliness just a little bit.
0: Wow. That is actually reminding me of a graduation speech to a school I didn't go to by someone I never met. But David Foster Wallace gave a graduation speech. I want to say it was at Kenyon. And again, this is someone who, who died of his own hand. But he talked about day in, day out, He's like, everyone's setting you up for, like, amazingness, and you're going to go on to these great futures. And he's like, yeah, sure, I hope you do. But I want to introduce you to the concept of day in and day out, where you buy the same groceries at the same grocery store, and you check out with just another um, random checkout clerk, someone you'll never know, and you can either make that person's day a little better or a little worse. You can either make them feel um, ignored, or known. And now that I'm thinking about David Foster Wallace's work and life through the lens of your book and this concept of saunter, I think he was begging um, to be known and for us to reach across these divisions that we like to hide behind, right? Because if I'm a clerk and you're a customer, we're supposed to have one kind of relationship. But it turns out that, you can have others then like you said you're never going to see this guy again from the train but you change the way those three hours were for him and he for you in a way that's and kind of every day and also magnificent
1: yeah i think sometimes it's this weird place sometimes that we look at the expected social interaction versus like a base level human interaction like and I think that's the flip of like how you can make that person's day better or worse. Like, are you going into that interaction saying, "Your job is to quote unquote serve me," and then I leave and go on, or is it we're two human beings having an interaction in public, and regardless of what your your status in relation to me is, we're still human beings doing a fundamental function of needing to eat food. Like <laughs> that that should be the entry point. And I think people skip that initial entry point and go straight into like a hierarchy of expectation.
0: saying like real world interactions is is reminding me of some of the writing you did about social media. Because as I read your book, I was thinking like, when do I feel myself most lonely? It's often when I'm scrolling these platforms, not, not so much when I'm engaging, because like, if I see that you've published this book, and I'm sending you messages, and we're talking on there, I, I do feel like that's a kind of engagement. But there's this other thing that I do. It's just I'm scrolling and and liking or scrolling and just thumbing along, thinking about, like, why are everyone else's breakfasts better than mine or their vacations are better? And why do their throw pillows match their walls in a way that's so much more satisfying than mine? I really like your analysis of social media um, and this quote you did was or what you wrote was like, quote, what I'm feeling is envy of a life I think I want. But you know you know, like the, the these tools that are supposed to be built for our connection can actually make us feel more isolated and discontented than ever before, right?
1: They do. I think too is that I find myself doing it sometimes where it's like I'm barely paying attention right I'm like I recognize the username and you posted something so I feel like I'm obligated to like it um (laughs) not because I've actually maybe and and if you're listening to this and we follow each other on social media it's not all the time but sometimes I'm like oh xyz posted this I should Mm -hmm. like it did I read the caption probably not did I scroll through all 10 pictures probably not but you posted it so I'm going to acknowledge it and I think that we get tricked into the idea that somebody liking or sometimes even commenting on something means that there's like a real interaction happening. It's kind of currency at this point Um, because a lot of social media, and I've rallied against the idea of branding myself as a writer or a person in general on social media, is I know that if I don't interact with you enough, not only is the algorithm not going to show you to me, I also won't have that currency built up with you that when I need you to do something for me, you're going to do it. And I'm doing my best, not all the time, I'm a human. I'm doing my best to kind of push against that a lot. But I think that that's where there's like this digital isolation, this digital loneliness that we don't acknowledge because we expect that a like, a reblog, a comment, a share means that you're engage with somebody and doesn't necessarily mean that you can double tag to like, you don't even have to like do anything in particular to do it. Um I wish in some ways, actually I probably will at some point dig a little bit deeper into digital and in, um, isolation and loneliness, but I think that's what it is, is this expectation, this, this illusion of connection is not Reel. And I do agree with the idea. I'm scrolling sometimes and I feel like I get lapped. Yeah. I feel like I'm being lapped so hardcore by a lot of people on social media. And it's because we see the highlight reels. And so I've I've talked before about the way that I present myself on social media is I I might be on my stories one day crying, full sobbing about a rejection or something else that happened. And other days it's like, hey, I have a book out. It's very professional. You should come to this event. Like it's a wide range of Presentation for myself. And I've had people push back against me and tell me that I should be more professional on my social media. I should be more branded. And I'm like, no, I think you do other people, writers or otherwise, humans in general, a disservice by not showing the full capacity of what a life is. You're doing them a disservice by making them believe that everything is great, everything is good, because it's not. Like, during the course of like this past year, I've had the highest of highs where. I had this book come out with the press that I thought I would never have a book on with an editor that is amazing. But also, I've had an event where nobody came. Absolutely, <laughs> like, like, that's <laughs> real life. I'm like, And I'm not going to hide that by pretending that it didn't happen. And so I think that if we were a little bit more honest with each other on social media, the digital isolation, the digital loneliness would be a little less daunting to overcome. Sure, we'd
0: stop comparing our insides to other people's outsides or you know, I wouldn't be comparing my Cheerios that are really my daughter's Cheerios that she didn't finish and then she took the bus and I finished her Cheerios. I was fine with that breakfast. It was fine. It was a salad, you know, I was a workday breakfast. But then I saw that you made quiche and now I hate the breakfast I had. And that, that that's the most um, you know, the 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 easiest of comparisons. But I, I do think I do a lot of promotion for the show, which is great. I want people to know who's been on, and and we put that out there. Um, But I definitely know a lot of my friends are just like, 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 they they didn't listen. They're just like, like, they're doing what I do. But some of the uh, most authentic posts that I can remember recently have been when I've brought doubt or fear or uncertainty and put it up there. And I might have felt awkward about saying, hey, this happened, and here's how I feel about it, and I don't even know if that's right. And then you hear from the four corners of all the people you'd even forgotten that you were friends with. It's been so long. I, th- I think there's that more of that would be would be would be welcome and might change what the experience is, because I I appreciate the platforms with for what they are. Like you and I are going to talk here and I saw you when you were in Cleveland and maybe I'll catch you when I'm in Philly. But if we're going to have any relationship from this, it might only be on those platforms. I want to stay connected in ways I can. And I do appreciate it for that. But it often makes us feel lonely, and uh,
1: I wish it didn't. I think we missed the sol- we're missing the social, and it it's just media at this point. Yeah. that it's like so curated that the social aspect of it the it's almost like I was watching a video the other day on another platform, TikTok, of all places, and it was talking about the idea of um, the missing third space for people currently. Like, there's no third space for people to go to. There's no bowling league, or there's no community center, there's like, you're just going work home, work home, occasional event, special event, but people are missing these third spaces, which where they were kind of combating loneliness and where they, com- they were combating isolation. And I think that there's something to be said about social media and online life being the third space for a lot of people. Like somebody like me, I had a completely analog childhood. I didn't touch the internet until I was 18 and I was in college and my whole adulthood has been online. So that's been my third space. For the majority of my life. And I think that at some point, and I'm gonna sound like an old Gen X lady, Gen but I think X. at some point over the last over the <laughs> last couple of years, we've gone from the more social aspect of social media to the media aspect of it and content creation and influencing. And I think there just needs to be a little bit of a pendulum swift um shift back to the more social aspect of it. And it would I think it would do a world of good, just socially. Honestly, self-esteem wise for some people creatively that you could feel like it's okay to not be in a in a in a peak at all the time. Like you could be in a valley. It's okay. It's not it doesn't make you less than to be that way.
0: That's very true. I am I love that idea of third spaces. I think those were some of the first things to go away in the pandemic and they were some of the last things to come back. Uh that's a such a good point. You you write really gorgeously about, like, just, like, vulnerability and yearning. You've got this line, quote, give me a place to belong and I'll give you my all. I think that's true for most of us. Like, we want to find our people to be seen and understood and be understanding. Um, it makes me think about, like, when you daydream about what life
1: could look like, what do you see? I see myself... In this weird hybrid life, um, I, through the book, by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize I'm half this journey to go home. Um, but my ideal life is me having the ability to be close to my family, um, without having to sacrifice the, the life that I've built for myself, um. So a hybrid life that exists with me being able to write and edit full-time. I don't want to write full-time because um, I, I think that if I wrote full-time, I would lose some of the passion for it and it would be too much of a job and not an outlet. Um, So a hybrid life between Ohio and, at this point, kind of Philly, Baltimore. I'm, I love Baltimore right now. Um, And writing and editing full-time. I would also like to be able to... um. Pull a little bit of like Harlem Renaissance into modern day. I would love to be a part of a literary salon.
0: Oh, me! I I know that I don't fit Harlem Renaissance, but can I come and like pour tea come and on. I'll bring cookies? <laughs> I love that idea. I'm yeah. I want an Algon- Algonquin roundtable here in Cleveland, mm-hmm. Ohio. I don't know how to make it happen, but I know exactly what you mean.
1: Just like these, like yeah, gatherings of just like oh, I'm I'm in. I will love it. Like, I think there's just such a space needed for kind of these, not even necessarily for the idea of production of creative work, but for the idea of just being in, in conversation and community with people who understand, like, the rabbit holes and the the obsessions and just the kind of conversations that get your juices flowing to make you want to write. Like, that would be ideal. Um, and all this, if possible, should take place near water. <laughs> like, that's my <laughs> only requirement. <laughs> Yes, I would' have lived near the water so bad.
0: Oh I love that. Well, as an Ohio girl, I really appreciated your ideas about coming home because I left left Ohio when I was 18. I was like, peace out. I am never coming back And then I was gone for 18 years, living all over. and then I came back <laughs> and then I left again and then I came back. So I understand that that tether like for me, I I want a city. I want all that's available in a city, whether it's theater or culture or three used bookstores or just my people. I want a city. But um, it is hard to be away from home. I also think for me, as I think about growing older, I think about, like, all the beautiful places I've traveled and all the amazing humans I've known and loved. And I have this fantasy of, like, when I picture what would be ideal, it's like, we're all there We're all coming together on this, like, plot of land, and maybe we have our own, like, tiny apartments and cottages, but then we have, like, this communal place, just, like, that space where we could just gather and laugh, and, like, there's nothing transactional about it. Like, you don't have to log a certain number of hours. You don't have to keep track. You're not expected to, like, create—like, it's just this place that's, like, safe and wonderful and— That feeling of lingering over dinner, like dinner's over, but nobody wants to leave. I love the warmth of that because I cannot bear the thought of growing old, alone, and to have met all these people along the way, and they're not here. I'm thinking of one of the people we have in common, Beth Wynn. Uh, author of Owner of the Lonely Heart and Other Things. She's a past guest on the show. I heard you talking about her before. I'd love to give her a shout out now. How did Beth influence your writing?
1: Um, She was my workshop instructor at Vona in 2018 um, in Berkeley, California. I went for many years. I'm a a poet by trade and um, a prose writer by choice. (laughs) And I, she was one, only the second writing workshop I ever took that was outside of grad school was her course. And she, I don't even know if she would ever remember because it's been years now, but she said something that fundamentally changed how I approached writing in her course. So we were sitting in her course and there was a group of us and I still talk to almost all of these ladies too. Um, and everybody was introducing themselves and they were kind of giving their like, I'm so-and-so and and I'm first generation this and I'm so-and-so and this is, and it was all just fascinating to me. But as they're getting closer to me and I'm like, oh God, I'm like this boring black girl from Ohio. I'm from like this two parent household, I'm pretty boring. And when they got to me, I kind of said something to that effect and she stopped and she was like, think about what it would have meant to you as a quote, boring black girl from Ohio to have somebody writing in your voice. And I had never thought about it that way. I thought that I had to have some sensational story or something really interesting, quote unquote, to say and that I had to be bombastic and that my voice and my stories were too quiet to be impactful in the in the publishing world. And she stopped that in, the tra- in my tracks and questioned me in a way that I hadn't questioned myself. And so from that point forward, I was like, I don't have to be anything other than myself. I don't have to be loud. I don't have to be anything other than this quote-unquote boring Black girl from Ohio who has some things that she needs to talk about. And because of her, like, that was the first time that I really thought about it in that way.
0: I love that. I mean, you know, Toni Morrison was a Black girl from Ohio, so you're keeping good company. I thought of her Nobel acceptance speech when in your story about Geneva. I, I thought about the story that Toni Morrison talked about, like, the woman on the edge of town who some people call a witch, who some people call a recluse, and, and the kids, like, go and knock on her door. But Toni Morrison talked about the wisdom that we can learn from the woman who's just on the outskirts of what we all consider to be what's included. So she was—the um, memory of her work, and just because you were Ohio-born here, uh, was really, for me, pulsing through my reading of The Loneliness Files.
1: I'm going to hold that. I'm going to put that in my chest
0: and put it right there. Well, you do that because it's all true. Uh, We always close with a little lightning round here. Playful questions. Uh, They're just multiple choice, the first ones. You ready? Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, Just pick one. Coffee or tea? Tea. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Mountains or beach? Beach. Boys to men or Star Trek Deep Space Nine? Star Trek Deep Space Nine. (laughs) coach purses or fiesta teacups coat purses waiting to exhale or like water for chocolate Ooh. <laughs> like water for chocolate yeah i gotta go back and rewatch both of those i mm-hmm. have seen them both but it's been a minute i wonder how they still hold up for me
1: that was a tough one
0: uh the truman show or eternal sunshine of the spotless mind Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That's another one I loved. I wonder if it holds up. I have to go back and revisit that. Those are both Jim Carrey, aren't they? Yeah, they are.
1: And funny thing is, I don't like Jim Carrey as like a comedian, but serious roles, love him. Me too.
0: I'm uh,
1: 100% on that. I agree.
0: Um, Okay, what would you be more likely to make a wish on? An eyelash that you find on your cheek or the number 1111 on a clock?
1: 1111. As my necklace that I'm wearing, nobody can see. It says 11-11. Stop it.
0: Oh, my gosh. I had a boyfriend. I don't know how that man got away, but uh, we always used to wish at 11-11 like, to mm-hmm. be together. It's so corny now. Maybe it's an Ohio thing. I don't know. But I still it think makes- of that man at 11-11 every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> you know who you are. Um, okay. A few more. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. Are you a risk taker or the person who knows always where the band-aids are? I always
1: know where, where the band-aids
0: are. Good. You can loan me one. I can never find them. Um, okay. This is a fill in the blank. Uh, the first question, um, is about your job. If you weren't writing and you had a little magic, what would you do instead? I would be a museum curator. Ooh, I would come to that museum. Do that.
1: I love museums. I love them.
0: Me too. My brother works at the Cleveland Art Museum, so every once in a while I'll just meet him and
1: I'll go through just a couple of the rooms. And mm-hmm. Yeah. i applied for multiple jobs at the Smithsonian. Did not get any of them, obviously.
0: Smithsonian, you're on notice. Please. This woman should be hired by you. Stat. Okay, a couple more. Uh, what is something quirky that people don't know about you? This could be like a like, a love,
1: a pet peeve. I am medically tongue-tied. What? What does it even mean? Yeah, I am. I'm looking. Like the the little tendon that attaches your tongue to the bottom of your mouth. Mine is super short. So Uh I'm like medically tongue-tied, which is why I have a little bit of a lisp sometimes. I've never noticed
0: that. Cool. Yes. What's one of your favorite songs? Hollywood by Victoria
1: Monet, which was my top song for 2023, according to Spotify. I've listened to it. three hundred and ninety six times since August. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: Since August. Yeah, since August. <laughs> I forget that they do that. I got to go check mine. That's great. Um, what's one of your favorite movies or favorite books
1: or both? My favorite book is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zona Hurston. Yeah. And I won't say it's my favorite movie, but a movie that I will watch every single time it comes on is Goodfellas. Every single time. <laughs>
0: He's making the sauce.
1: He's got the guns. I mean. Yes. I don't care what I'm doing. If, I, if it comes one, I'm watching it. I don't, doesn't matter what what capacity, what I'm doing, I'm watching Goodfellas every single time. I love that.
0: Uh, all right, last two. What's your favorite ice
1: cream flavor? Dolce de Leche by Hagen Doss.
0: Nice. Okay, and last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy doing something you love, what would we see?
1: I would be thrifting with my sister. Sister thrifting.
0: Sister thrifters. Oh, you could start that museum. I would go to that too. I could. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, Athena Dixon, thank you for stopping by today. In your recent memoir, The Loneliness Files, you write that, quote, it takes time for us to realize in which direction life is pulling us and whether that is further away or closer to those we love. I have been thinking so much about about that uh, since I read your book. We often have this idea that that if we're lonely, it means we're not loved. Or if we're loved, we could never be lonely. And since reading your book, I've looked at and interacted with strangers differently. We never know um, the profound stories unfolding just off camera. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Thank you so much for having me. and Thank you for reading. Anytime. Folks, our guest today has been Athena Dixon, author of several books, including most recently The Loneliness Files. You can find it at your local library or at an indie store near you to everyone listening. We're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers. Gerardo Orlando and Michael DiAloya. and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders.